Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. If you were here with us last week, you may remember that I began by demonstrating a problem with the routine celebration of Christmas each year. The danger that we saw last, last week was much like the Grinch. Do you remember what the Grinch wanted? He wanted all the things without the substance. He stole all the presents. He wanted all the goods, and he missed the reason for the season, as it's so often called. We looked how the reason for the season being the understanding of the coming of Jesus Christ as the center point of all of our Christmas celebration, and we saw how a return to not being caught in the trappings of Christmas, but looking towards the substance of Christmas, that we might escape that temptation. But my second desire is this, that if we remember the real reason for the season, as we talked about last week, the celebration of God's salvation through the sending of his son to die for sinners, we still have another danger lurking. Here is a more subtle and dangerous temptation. It is to remember the facts of the gospel, not to be caught up in the trappings of the celebration of Christmas, but to truly remember the facts of the gospel, but still to fail to celebrate those facts with joy. The failure that we may uh, enter into in the celebration of Christmas is to avoid all the trappings. We, we hold those at a distance from us saying, we're not going to get caught up in consumerism, but then we miss the whole soul. We, we, in so doing of trying to push these things to the periphery, we refuse to be touched by the ecstatic joy that this season is supposed to bring. This season is supposed to bring scandalous, ecstatic joy for what we understand Christ to be for his people. Here is the problem, is that in becoming familiar with the gospel, we may become overly familiar 
I'm reminded of the movie I Am Sam, in which Sam, as he is working at the Starbucks, is quoting to himself the corporate training. And he said, we always must be familiar, uh, excuse me, friendly, but never familiar. There's a sort of familiarity with the things of the gospel that actually causes us to become deadened to them. We know we've heard these things before. And yet, I believe God wants his people to be renewed in the knowledge of the gospel so that it becomes their experience. That it is not a head knowledge divorced from a heart knowledge, but that the mind would serve the soul. That the mind would inform the soul of what we celebrate in Jesus Christ. Too often, therefore, we fail to understand this amazing salvation that God has brought his people, and therefore we don't delight in the work of Christ. We know the facts of the gospel, but they have not become treasures to us. It is exactly this need that Zephaniah addresses as he writes to God's people. To that end, I want to look at four things. Although this is a day of joy in the midst of a season of uh, introspection and repentance and mourning of sin and anticipating the return of Christ, we still must acknowledge the context for Zephaniah's passage this morning. We're going to look briefly at the book of Zephaniah as he wrote to God's people And then from there, we're going to look at the passage itself, that Israel should rejoice in God. And the reason that they rejoice is because he's taken away the judgments against them. And not only has he taken away the judgments and removed their oppressors, he himself has personally come into their midst. And then finally, we're going to look at what it means to actually delight in Jesus Christ ourselves, and how all of this affects worship, the worship of God, the recognition of who God is. Zephaniah begins his prophecy at the time when the king Josiah was on the throne. He was the last righteous king to sit on the throne of Judah before the Babylonian captivity. In other weeks, we've looked at the kings, uh, the pro- excuse me, the prophets who were prophesying during the exile, and now we are rewinding back to a few decades before the exile began. At the beginning of Zephaniah, he not only identifies that he was writing during the time of Josiah, a a small reformer of Israel at the time, he opens his prophecy with these words in Zephaniah 1-2, thus says the Lord, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. That is not what we want to hear on God at Sunday, is it? You cannot hear Zephaniah 3, 14 through 20 outside of Zephaniah 1 and 2 and 3. It is impossible to do so. We must hear that God, through his prophet, tells his people they have rejected the covenant and therefore God is going to sweep away everything that is on the face of the earth. Their sins have become so great that Zephaniah uses the language that is used of the days of Noah, that the great flood which came in would sweep away all flesh from the earth and it would take away all, not just buildings, but plants and animals and even the fish in the sea will suffer because of the sin of mankind. Man had fully set his heart on evil in the days of Noah and Zephaniah, by using Noah's phraseology or the the phraseology of the Noahic judgment is saying about Israel, Israel's perverted herself. Her thoughts are continually evil. 
God, therefore, has a goal in this. He wants to cleanse his people from the idols that they serve. He wants to take away the idols, and it also says that he's going to judge the priests. In Zephaniah 1, 4 through 6, we hear that God is going to remove the priests who bow down to the stars of heaven. They go up on the roofs of their house, perhaps even the roof of the temple, and they bow down and they worship the hosts of the heaven as gods. We remember from Genesis that God actually subjected the sun, the moon, and the stars to serve as governors. They're clocks. They're not gods. And Israel had listened to the nations around her and begun to worship these as if they were God itself. Though God warned Jerusalem, Jerusalem, in Zephaniah 3.2, we hear, Jerusalem listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to God. Some might say, why did God need to say, I'm going to sweep away everything? Couldn't God have sent a prophet to call her to repentance? And the answer to that is yes and amen. He did send prophets to call Israel to repentance, but none of them would hear his prophets. None of them, as it said, would listen to correction. None of them would hear a voice from the Lord. And therefore, God warns Israel, you will be taken away. Not only does Israel... Uh, not only is Israel taken away, but Zephaniah, too, Zephaniah prophesies to all of the nations around Israel who have oppressed her by flooding her with false religion, false gods, and also military uh, conquest. God warns all of the different nations around Israel that they too would face judgment. We can think of it like this, as Israel, as the people of God, they were supposed to mediate God's presence into the nations around them. They were supposed to be a light to the world. They were supposed to be a remnant of God's people by whom God would bless the nations. The promise given to Abraham was supposed to be fulfilled through God's people, Israel, and yet they never would be willing. This is why God brings a military judgment out Uh, against his people. The question is, why was God angry with his people? Not only did they break the covenant, but the chief problem is this. Though God delivered Israel out of Egypt and put her in a gracious land filled with everything they could possibly need, they refused to be delighted in God. They refused to take enjoyment in God. This was not a trivial disobedience. They were never satisfied with God and therefore they refused to glorify him. They were never content with the things that they were given by God and those things that they were given were supposed to lead them to acknowledge him as the giver and the true gift himself. All of the vineyards and the wine presses and the the orchards and the the threshing floors and the homes and the cities that they received for free without having to even put their hand to build, all of them they used to fatten their soul. They became drunk on the gifts and not acknowledging the givers. And so God brought a judgment against them. Jeremy Taylor was an Anglican bishop during the Puritan era, and he said this, which powerfully captures the spirit of the judgment against Israel. God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. What an amazing quote. 
It is not that our God is a God of wrath alone. No, he wants to bless his people. His wrath is not in tension with his love. He desires to be loved by his people and he commands his people to acknowledge him as God. And for a time, Israel enjoyed the deliverance, but they quickly went astray. We see this in no better place than the making of the golden calf while they are being delivered out of Egypt. In the very first chapters of the story of them coming out of the wicked land of Egypt, they fashion a god of metal to worship. Yet in the midst of this warning of judgment to the nation, Zephaniah tells this remnant of God's people to rejoice. Though her sins were extremely grievous, God is going to restore Israel by taking away her guilt and all of her enemies. Now, God brought her enemies to power in order to punish her, to hopefully wake her up from the drunken stupor that she was in. Nevertheless, God says that he's going to take away the guilt and he's going to take away the enemies. Verse 14, Zephaniah writing to Israel, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Notice these words that Zephaniah uses, sing, shout, rejoice, exult. These are words of bold boasting of one's soul before God in corporate worship. These are not timid words like, let's acknowledge the facts of the Lord's redemption. No, this is shout for joy, Israel. You've been delivered from everything that harms you, from everything that oppresses you. And then he enumerates what the chief issue is. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. You see, in the understanding of the reason judgment came against Israel, it was because she was guilty that God brought these enemies to bear. And so by taking away the guilt, there's no reason for the enemies to gain over her any longer. He takes away not only the guilt, but also the enemies. This is something that's not often understood when we look at the Exodus. There's not really a great understanding of the guilt of Israel in the Exodus, but here it's in the center of Zephaniah's focus. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Remember, he's writing to a people for whom generation after generation of wicked kings caused the nation to slide further into apostasy and into death. And here he says that there is not just a righteous king who's now come. He says, God himself, the Lord, Yahweh, is the king of Israel, and he has come into your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The thing we have to notice here is that Israel is commanded by Zephaniah to respond today with great joy to the salvation that God will do in the future. In verse 16, he says, in that day, it will be said. But he says a positive command, rejoice now, for what will take place in the future. Remember, Zephaniah's writing before the exiles even happened. God's people, therefore, must worship exuberantly because here, God has done what the people could not. Israel, we understand, could not pardon herself. 
Remember, one of the judgments over and over again in the Old Testament is that God tells his people that they should, as we saw last week, just simply close the doors to the temple. I wish that someone would stop committing these idolatrous sacrifices, stop bringing me sick animals as peace offerings. God was weary with their worship. The point is this, that Israel could not pardon herself, nor could she defeat the mighty nations which oppressed her. God is doing everything for his people. He is saving them from their guilt. He is saving them from their enemies, neither of which they could even lift a finger against. Therefore, when God tells his people to sing and shout, to lift up their voice, to exult, it means that their singing and shouting should be an expression of thanks for what God has done. He has accomplished a mighty deliverance and they are acutely aware of their need. You see, one of the blessings of God in his judgments against his people is he helps us to see our need. We so often do not understand our need for deliverance that we trivialize the fact of deliverance. This is the aim that Zephaniah is pointing at. It's this, God's people don't truly celebrate enough the salvation which God has brought about through Christ. Like Israel, we too are tempted to worship in lackluster. We become overly conscious of the perils and pains of life. And therefore, Christ is pushed to the periphery of our world because we so focus on the issues of our day that we forget the sole important fact of life. It is that Christ has come and delivered his people from death. Instead, we ought to prepare our hearts and minds for worship. This is one of the best practices for a Christian, is to set apart Saturday nights to devote yourself to the worship of God by preparing your minds and hearts. In Colossians 3.16, we hear this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Why do we need to let the word of Christ dwell richly? It's because the word of Christ then informs our souls what we need to do. And in fact, most, uh, many theologians who write about the issues of worship talk about it as the culmination or the completion of our thanksgiving. You see, it's not enough to actually enjoy God in a sense. Unless that enjoyment comes to fruition in expression, then that enjoyment is not really full. Test yourself in this. What is your favorite thing to eat? Just, you don't need to shout it out loud. Just think about your favorite, I know I have a thing. When I eat that thing, I can't say thank you. I can't but help say thank you, God. The thanks finishes the enjoyment. Anyone who's been married knows this to be the case, that the consummation of the marriage at the wedding night is the fulfillment of the whole process of the wedding. It is the end, you can say, the teleological end for which the marriage was begun. There is a covenant and there is celebration. These are two things brought together in holiness. You see, our thanksgiving, our expression of thanks, is the fullness of our experience of joy. Unless we understand what God has done and that understanding leads to worship, then in some way we haven't really understood. 
because it's the end goal. Worship of God is the reason for God saving his people. The reason for Israel's exaltation is that God himself has returned to his people. God has not just taken away their sins. God has not just removed their enemies. No, the greatest gift is this, that he has come into their midst and has made his presence to be known to his people. Therefore, their singing is to be a response of his singing over them. These perhaps are the most precious words in all of the minor prophets, in my opinion. Now, we, we spent time in Malachi and Micah. They're all precious, but these are amazing words. Listen closely. The Lord your God, verse 17, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This delight over Israel is astonishing. It should be astonishing. This is a people who for centuries have followed other gods and have scorned his covenant. They've squandered his blessings. They've abused them and used them for their own pleasures, their own benefit, instead of using them for their neighbors. And yet God through Zephaniah says, God is going to so thoroughly heal you that you won't merely be tolerated, you will be rejoiced over. This is a powerful verse for the soul. This is what it is speaking of when we understand that Christ transforms his people. God's love in Zephaniah is not a mere toleration. This is the difficulty with the world's understanding of love today. Love has become defined as an acceptance of the other, but not a transformation of the other. You see, God's love is no mere toleration. It doesn't just accept people, God's people, where they're at. It doesn't just leave them there. No, God's love is more than toleration and light approval. God's love is a transforming love. God's love is an efficacious love. It's an effective love. That is to say this, that God makes his people lovely by loving them. You see, God does not wait for Israel to repent. No, he declares to her, even in the midst of her judgment, God will restore you. He will take away your enemies. He will take away your guilt and shame. And he himself will not just allow you to sing to him. He will start singing over you. God, therefore, makes Israel worthy by choosing her. She does not become worthy in order for him to choose her. No, he chooses her and she becomes worthy. This love, therefore, is the ending of all of her fears. God's love is a love that is perfect and unfailing. And this perfect, unfailing love casts out all fear. We read that in 1 John 4, that the love of God removes all the fears of his people. God's love, therefore, likewise should transform our fears. As God says, he will quiet you with his love. What does that mean? It means that God's love is so thoroughly applied to his people. It's so surely placed upon them that they no longer have to worry. This is a great aid to the soul. Can Christ love me enough that he can even pardon this sin that I've done? 
of course. Yes and amen. That's the whole point. None of your deeds were worthy of being chosen. None of your good works are even good enough to merit his favor or even attention. All of our sins have made a separation and yet God through Jesus Christ has bridged the gap and come and redeemed his people. He's not only redeemed them and given them a blank slate. No, he's put beauty in them such that when he looks at them, he can't help but singing. That is a powerful understanding of God's love. And it is that sort of love with which God saves his people. God himself is going to save his people, the enemies within and without. He will transform them wholly and he will make them his treasure. Verse 19, behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. Notice he doesn't say what he's going to do with them. He just quickly moves on. And I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renowned in all the earth. When God gave his people warnings and uh, blessings and curses, the warnings of both in Deuteronomy, one of the things that he clearly says is that if they run away from his covenant, that he will bring all forms of illness upon them. And God saying that he's going to save the lame doesn't just mean that God's going to remove the enemies and remove their guilt. This here is a miracle because God is going to even remove the effects of their sin such that they can leap for joy in his presence. He's going to gather them and take their garments of shame off and put garments of praise on. Verse 20, at that time, I will bring you in. At that time, I will gather you together. God in this passage is not just seen as the king of Israel, as he mentioned earlier, but here, this language describes him as a shepherd, that God will gather his lost people who will go into exile, and he says, I'm going to gather you together. And instead of Israel being a byword among the nations, a a word of curse, a word of scorn, he says, I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. The point is that God completely undoes everything that Israel did in her sin. And he does not merely tolerate them, he sets his heart upon them. And all of this is a precursor or a foreshadowing of what takes place in the gospel. In the place of shame for God's people, he's going to cause them to be praised for what God has done in their midst. Remember what God had given Israel as a promise that if you keep his law, all the nations will come and they'll say, how has there ever, there has never been a people so blessed as this with a law as great who was given to them by God. There's never been a people whose God is real, who actually blesses them, who is a real God and not a God of the nations. And nevertheless, even though they've rejected his covenant, God still says that they will be blessed in time. We see all of this take place in the fullness of time, that after the exile, after the rest, a restoration into the land, God sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to save them from their sins and deliver them from bondage. In the life of Christ, over and over again, we see God's people celebrate with exuberant joy in his presence in their midst. For he, Christ, is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. 
before and in his birth, Jesus was the cause of great joy for God's people. In Luke chapter one, we hear that when Mary went to visit Elizabeth, the John, later called John the Baptist, leapt for joy in his mother's womb at the news of Christ's presence. Mary comes and says to Elizabeth what has happened to her and the baby within her leaps for joy because he knows who Christ is. By the Holy Spirit, John, although he was not in any way that we understand conscious or, or understanding the scriptures even, he leaps for joy because he experiences God's presence in Christ. In Matthew 2, we hear about the Magi who come and they worship the Christ child. It says that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, worshiping him and bringing him gifts. These Magi God had called as a foreshadowing of the day when all the nations will come and they will stream up to the house of God and they will bring their gifts to him. Here, the Magi come and they don't just bring gifts and put them at his feet. No, they worship with exceeding joy. I want you to imagine what worshiping with exceeding joy for the Magi might have been. These are men who live, they are like kings or maybe dukes or governors. These are regal men who have wisdom. They, you might think of them as professors of the Gentile nations who have become maybe Jews and therefore they've read the scriptures and have traveled across the world to find this king, the king for all the ages, and they bring him gifts. What do you think the joy would have been when they found him? It would have been exceedingly exuberant joy. It would have been expressions and exaltations and leapings and shouts. They came, as Matthew read, exceedingly with great joy, that they rejoiced in him, that the joy that they had for Christ, this king for all time, was not only experienced once, but it kept on welling up. In Matthew 2, we hear Mary's song, often called the Magnificat, saying this. She said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You see, Mary had been waiting for the arrival of the king. Just like Simeon and Anna we saw last week, there were a handful, a remnant of God's people who were anticipating the Lord's return. And therefore, when she understood what was taking place to her, as she said, be it done to me, as the Lord says, that she began to rejoice. It wasn't just a little joy, it was exceeding joy. In Luke 2, we hear that the angel of the Lord who appears to the shepherds declares, Fear not, for behold, I bring you great news of great joy, sorry, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. It's not joy just to the shepherds, it's joy for all the people. They're announcing the news which will cause joy to explode throughout not just Israel, all the nations. The question that we have to ask is this, why is the birth of Christ such great joy and exuberance? Why is it the cause of joy? How is it the case that John leapt in his mother's womb when he knew that Christ was present? Why is it the case that Mary said that she rejoices exceedingly in God, her Savior? Perhaps the greatest example 
that we could use to answer this question comes from Luke's account in the life of Christ when the woman comes with the alabaster jar. Before I describe this event, if you remember this story from Luke chapter 7, you may have understood some of the details but missed much of the point. It is very clear from the illusion of this woman that she was a woman of the city. Remember what we've been talking about with Israel for the last few weeks, that Israel played the harlot, that Israel committed adultery, that Israel was worshiping idols, and that God considered that national false worship to be a picture of marital unfaithfulness. This woman who Luke writes of, who brings an alabaster jar, is called a woman of the city. That's polite speech to describe her nature of profession. It's what some people call the oldest of professions. She was very clearly a prostitute. And she comes to the Lord Jesus at this time and breaks an alabaster jar over his feet. In Luke's account, we hear that Christ was dining in a Pharisee's house. He had come into this house and a woman, a woman of the city, comes and breaks an alabaster jar. Now, for those of us who've never had alabaster, you can think of this as one of the most expensive perfumes where they price it near either printer ink or gold. It's very, very expensive. (laughs) You can think of this as like, I don't know, Christine Dwar, I I don't know my perfumes. The point is this was thousands of dollars per ounce. It was very expensive. She probably, I'm speculating, but she likely got it as a gift from one of her clients. That's where I think it came from. That is speculation, but I think it fits the picture perfectly. She takes what is her treasure before she recognizes who Christ is. She comes and she bows at his feet and she begins to weep. She begins to weep over Christ's feet and wash his feet with her hair. And she then continues to kiss his feet once she has washed them. The Pharisee was absolutely incredulous that Christ would allow himself to be touched by this kind of woman. In fact, he says, if you were really a prophet, you would know what sort of woman is touching you. You see, in those days, the Pharisees and most of Israel had perverted righteousness to be adherence to the external code instead of the fulfillment of the heart, the weightier measures of the law, as Jesus told the Pharisees, mercy, Uh, justice, faithfulness. Christ, therefore, rebukes this Pharisee, saying that her weeping and service was an expression of her love. In Luke 7, 47, the words of our Lord tell us, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. The point that Jesus is saying is not that she has forgiveness of sins because she loved him. No, it's the opposite. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And we know this. You can translate for as we know this because she loved much. The reason that this woman loves much is because she recognizes who Christ is. 
The point is this, you never kiss someone's feet unless you're fully convinced that they're not only a king, but they're a king for whom or without whom you cannot live. You don't go around kissing feet. In fact, I almost guarantee most of us in this room, unless we're kissing like the feet of a baby, we have never approached this sort of weeping and joy and delight in our treasure. We have never gotten down before our flat screen TVs or our cars or our jobs and kissed them like this. You see, false worship isn't just a rival to true worship. It's actually a mockery of what worship is supposed to be. True worship exhibited by this woman is that she loves Christ because she knows who Christ is and what he alone can give to her. The point is you never kiss feet unless you're convinced of the value of that person. That's why John leaps for joy because he knows what Jesus is going to do for his people. He knows that this is not just the fulfillment of all God's promises. In some way, this infant in utero testifies of the worth and the glory and the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. Without God's Holy Spirit revealing our sin, therefore, we are ambivalent to the salvation which Christ brings. This is the chief reason and root of why most of our worship is often trivial, trite, and glib. What do I mean by trivial? I mean, it really isn't convincing anyone. We ourselves might not even be very convinced. It's trite in that it's often a show or a form without the substance. You see, we, it's not a division between form and meaning. Form and meaning go together. Our worship is often glib when it's polished but overly professional. Things can go wrong in worship. The point is that we, if we have formal worship without joy, we do not have worship. We need, therefore, the Holy Spirit to reveal to us that Zephaniah is writing to us. We are just like Israel in those days. We have all bowed down before idols. We have all worshiped the hosts of heaven. We have all oppressed others and been thankless. But in Christ, what we were becomes the old man which has passed away. Only as new living men can we even see how dead we were. It's often the case that we don't even recognize what we were saved out of until many more years in walking with Christ. Therefore, as new creations in Christ, we are just now approaching the spring of life. We are just now, even in the midst of winter, experiencing that light coming into the world in our lives, in our churches, through Christ's kingdom, throughout the world. And as we are renewed by his Holy Spirit, we must come to see Christ as our highest and deepest joy. It is not enough that we know the facts of the gospel. Every day we must ask for God to renew us in our joy because we recognize what Christ has done. In the classic The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis captured a sense of our unrenewed appetites. In so doing, he described the folly of not realizing Christ as our true source of joy. Listen closely. In The Weight of Glory, Lewis writes, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but true weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's the point of the season of Advent. It's to recognize the darkness from which we have been saved, the enemies outside of us, the enemies within us. And it is Christ alone who can accomplish this great salvation. And therefore, because we know that Christ has indeed come and has restored and redeemed his people and is still doing it by the Holy Spirit, we can rejoice with exceedingly great joy. In fact, I invite you to, when we worship as a people, to worship with joy and solemnity. Why? Because he's the king who you need, and he's also still the king. We, we must come and worship him in a way that fully expresses the end for which he saved us, that we would be free and we would be his. Nevertheless, we must not forget he is our Lord. Therefore, this Advent and every day forward, let us celebrate with exuberance the coming of Jesus Christ, our salvation and our deliverance, who frees us from all sin, guilt, and shame. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the wonderful source of joy, who never ends, who never fails. We pray that you would allow us by your spirit to worship in spirit and truth with great joy, that we would express not just thanks, but that you would be for us our highest and deepest joy, the thing with which, with, without which we could never live. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.